0: Uh, We went there to contribute to a work that's already begun, already been underway, and that work is Central African Preaching Academy, or uh, CAPA, C-A-P-A. And CAPA's aim is essentially just to come to a country and work in a country where there already are believers, there already are churches, but there is really no theological grounding and therefore... uh, however many of those who profess to be believers really are believers, there's just not much um, of a foundation. It's pretty weak. And so the goal was to bring theological education there. That is the goal. And really to strengthen men, uh, either current pastors or pastors-to-be, just to be able to shepherd more biblically, to be able to lead churches, to grow more biblical, more honoring to Christ, to be able to identify theological error and root that out, to be able to uh, be discerning and guard against future incursions of theological error. So that's what uh, Kappa broadly does. Um, that, that has to happen in, in multiple ways. Really, an academic institution can't completely train a pastor. It requires a lot of other things, which is one of the reasons why the Expositor Seminary is such a wonderful model. Uh, I saw that while trying to work in an almost a generally uh, academic sphere, and felt the need to have to supplement it in other ways. Um, But our primary work there is on the academic front through degrees, and so our three main degrees that we offer are a diploma, number one, which is just one year of pretty basic training in studying and preaching the English text of the Bible, meaning they don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew. Um, If they do well in that, they're able to go on for another three years of more in-depth study uh, so, in that degree that they would get then is called a Bachelor of Theology. It's a total of four years, but their first year in the diploma counts as year one. They do three more years, and those three years significantly extend their training, both in, in breadth and in depth. They learn a little bit of Hebrew, at least to use tools. They learn Greek pretty extensively, and they're really trained quite well to be faithful pastors, uh, to faithfully pastor and shepherd a local church church. And then we offer, finally, a Master of Divinity, which uh, goes beyond the Bachelor of Theology in that it's training a man in uh, Hebrew pretty extensively, Greek even more extensively. Students are expected to know basic Greek coming into the program. And in addition to just wanting them to be competent, to be a faithful pastor, that is to be able to put into practice the skill we want them really to be very clear-headed about sort of a philosophy of ministry, why they do what they do, why, why do they preach the way they preach as opposed to other ways, and be able to not only articulate that, but be able to assess alternatives. And the reason is because in a country like America, we have lots of resources that guide pastors along the way, they don't have that, and, and there need to be men, Malawians, nationals, who can do that. And we're hoping these uh, students, the ones graduating from our Master of Divinity program, will be able to do that, to really be able to uh, just give direction to the church, even beyond their own, uh, whatever the issues may be around the corner. So those are the, the three degrees at a formal level uh, that's offered there. That's what Kappa does, but what do Emmy and I do? What's our part in that? Well, my role at at the school is twofold. Uh, First, administratively, I function as the academic dean, which just means that I oversee all of the academic programs, the courses, um, oversee academic quality in the faculty, and that also means I help with faculty development, and particularly with our Malawian faculty, which... Uh, it's something I love doing. Our goal is not to be missionaries there forever. Uh, it's a slow work. It can't be handed over quickly. It has to be done responsibly. We have to make sure these men are ready to handle that. Uh, but it starts by just consistently pouring into them and, and helping them to get to where they need to be to be able to lead the school in the future. We hope that in the future all missionaries would be able to pull out, and the school would continue to be run by nationals, by Malawians, contributing to, uh, to, to training future pastors for that country. So I spent a good bit of time working with those men. It'd be easy just simply to focus on the professional aspects of the development of faculty, but uh, you can't have a good uh, lecturer or professor in a school like that a genuinely good one who's going to be training pastors who are shepherding Christ's Church well. Unless there's a lot going on in the foundation, unless he's a faithful man, unless he he loves Christ, he loves his family, and is faithful in those domains, um, and unless he loves the church and is a faithful churchman who can shepherd well there. So really, that that uh, development of faculty goes so much more, so much beyond just the professional development of their abilities to teach in the classroom or to write research, but really just to be uh, faithful at all of the levels below that, uh, but in many ways more foundational to that. So those are the two main, or that's the main thing I do uh, with administration, being the dean of academics, and then also I I teach as well. So I teach primarily in what we call biblical studies, uh, Greek and Hebrew, and then some biblical theology Emmy also contributed uh, significantly to the work, not only by significantly supporting me to do that, but she herself was directly involved. Uh, One of the big ways was through a seminary wives fellowship. What that means is that the wives of the students, getting them together once a month to be able to fellowship and to receive some teaching. And so she would be a part of helping that to happen. And then also more informally, she would meet up with the wives of the students I was teaching to be able to uh, just disciple them. We also tried to be heavily involved in our local church. Uh, It's very easy at any time to get involved in other sorts of ministries, and it seems like it's even easier in the context of the mission field. Um, But we wanted to be very involved serving in a local church, so we were involved in International Bible Fellowship, And uh, we had the privilege of jumping in, getting to know people, uh, being in their homes, having them in our homes, and Lord really blessed that, uh, just in the sense that as those relationships deepened, we were able to speak truth to them and see fruit being born, see people beginning to change, and so uh, I think it's those sorts of things that uh, somewhat make it difficult to leave because you want to continue to see them and uh, help them, but... um, yeah, we're just thankful to the Lord for for those relationships. We also continue to serve in that church. Uh, in some other ways, I was involved occasionally in preaching, um, co-teaching a Sunday school class, an adult Sunday school class, co-leading a small group, those sorts of things. And as you wouldn't be surprised, Emmy was involved in the music ministry, playing the keyboard for them. Um, Emmy was also able to be helpfully involved with the other missionary families who are homeschooling their children uh, by just spending some of her time during the week there, helping them with that. So that's what we normally do. Uh, But as you guys know, the past number of months haven't been normal. Coronavirus made its way there too. And so that disrupted things. Uh, We had to stop classes. The government's mandate. Churches had to stop meeting. It was a little bit later than here in the U.S., There's not a whole lot of international travel. Malawi will be near the bottom of the list of countries by wealth, so there's not a whole lot of international travel. People who are there stay there. Ninety percent don't even have access to electricity, so they aren't getting on planes and flying. Um, But it did get there, and so by the beginning of April, we had to shut those sorts of things down. Um, And it's not yet clear exactly when they're going to be able to open, when churches will be able to open, when schools will be able to open, and that's a lot of what we do. In uh, the new number of new cases each week is continuing to rise, but uh, we're working to return at some point to finish up or to to, to finish up the last year because we had to stop mid academic year unfortunately, and want to get back and finish that, and then also to complete another academic year. So that's what we're working toward. We aren't really sure when we'll be able to leave. We're aiming to leave here to return there near the end of July, beginning of August. It's still unclear if that'll be possible, but that's what we're aiming to. And when we do return for another year, our responsibilities will be largely the same, the ones I just outlined from the past year, Um, just continuing to serve in that same church, continuing to lead at the school, and just build relationships there. So uh, let me give you guys some ways you can pray for us. You have been so eager to pray for us. Uh, I regularly get emails letting me know how you're praying for us, or uh, those of you who get our newsletter updates, Um, electronically responding and saying, we've been praying for such and such situation. How is that going? Do you have any updates for us? So uh, it really is a privilege to be able to share updates with you and prayer requests because I know you're genuinely interested and we will be praying. So I've got five up there. Uh, Number one, please pray that we'll be able to return to Malawi and resume classes as scheduled. We trust that to the Lord, but that would be seemingly the most convenient thing from a human perspective. Number two, please pray that the Lord will cause lasting fruit to result from our labors. While I was there this past year, read a number of things by veteran missionaries from Africa, one in particular that stuck out to me by a man who was working with the IMB in western uh, French Africa for a long time, for his whole life, and basically at the end just recounting his time there and <clears throat> basically said that uh, as he looks back, having left the field, uh, it kind of all crumbled and there was really nothing of lasting value to show for it. And so just thinking about that, uh, we can't do anything to to make sure it's going to be lasting. We can do our best to be biblical and faithful, but the Lord's got to be the one to cause that genuine fruit to come about. So we would ask you to pray with us that the Lord would cause lasting fruit to be born from our labors. Number three, Please pray that uh, students will be genuinely transformed, becoming mature disciples and mature shepherds. It's easy to go through an academic program, get a degree, and not really be transformed, um, and just be content that you now have a better standing in your denomination because you have have another degree. And that's not what we're interested in. It's not what glorifies Christ. And so pray that the Lord will be working through the extensive and intensive exposure to biblical truth they receive to genuinely transform these men. Number four, please pray that the number of healthy churches in Malawi would increase and that the health of those who, who, that are there would grow yet healthier. That's really the end game. It's so easy to get caught up in uh, just seeing the institution do its job, have more graduates Um, or just be content for the the types of missions work that can be done outside of the local church, and yet really all of it needs to be directed to the establishment and strengthening of churches because that's what Christ is building, as Pastor Jeff reminded us a couple weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, number four would just be sort of the end game, the goal, and so praying at that that level. And then number five, please pray that we'd be able to raise additional funds needed for next year. Uh, You guys have been so generous in, in supporting us. Uh, but we do need to raise a little bit more for the next year, so please pray with us that we'd be able to raise those funds. We just want to say again, thank you, Timberlake, for just all the ways you support us and all of your kindness. Uh, it's no doubt that this is our ascending church by your kind of interest and involvement in uh, our work, and i I don't know how often, it'd be difficult to say how regularly, but you guys were regularly sending emails, asking how things were going, letting me know you were praying for us, sometimes phone calls. It's so easy to keep up these days with uh, media, so I just appreciate that. Thank you for supporting us with your prayers. Thank you for supporting us with your words of encouragement, and thank you, Timberlake, for supporting us financially. Well, please grab your Bibles and turn to Psalms 2. Psalm 2, as we transition to the Word now. Psalm 2. This is a time for confidence. This moment in history is a time for confidence. What? Is it really? A time for confidence? Is it not a time for cowering? To panic? To be anxious? Time for confidence? How many and how serious are the reasons we could list for doubting that this is a time for confidence? They're going to vary. Different ones for uh, various people here. For some of you, it could be uh, the health threat of the coronavirus pandemic. For others of you, it may be the economic threat caused as a, as a byproduct of the attempts to slow the spread of the virus, loss of job, loss of livelihood. For the others of you, it could be concern about the way that those in power are politicizing the whole thing to be able to grasp more power for themselves or to be able to retain office for themselves for another term. Maybe it's a reminder, the reminder, that those tasked with law enforcement and protecting citizens are sometimes the very ones who twist justice and abuse those they're tasked to protect, even murdering them. Or it could be uh, just the societal unrest of riots and looting. And the list could go on. There are so many reasons before us that could be tempting us to doubt. Is this really a time for confidence? That's certainly not what the headlines tell us. This morning, I'm not going to prescribe solutions to any of those issues. I'm really not even going to directly address any of those issues. However, the scriptures are going to directly address and provide a solution for the unrest in our souls this morning we're going to turn our attention to the revelation of the lord in psalm 2 a revelation that provides a transcendent confidence creating perspective on world history i trust you've all made your way to psalm 2 by now So please follow along in your Bibles as I read, and as I read, I just want you to be aware that the speaker of this psalm is from the context of the psalm, quite evidently a Davidic king, and it seems pretty obvious, King David himself. So let's read beginning in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. They take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, David says. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he went on and said to me, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him! We might summarize this psalm by saying that it gives us a transcendent, confidence-creating perspective on world history in three parts. We'll work through these three parts, but I'll give you all three up front. Number one, part one, the global rebellion, which we find in verses one through three. Part two, the grand remedy, which we find in verses four through nine. In part three, the gravity-laden ramification in verses 10 through 12. David begins by telling us in his own words what humanity as a whole is doing in verses 1 and 2. He begins with the word why, but he's not really asking a question as though he needs to know some kind of answer. It's more an expression of astonishment, of bewilderment, of, of amazement, it's as though he's saying, What are the nations thinking? Agitating like this. And the peoples, their vain their vain scheming? What's it gonna come to? It's gonna come to naught. It's, it's useless. He hereby observes with scorn the folly of humanity in its rebellious state. And then he turns from the peoples generally to their rulers in particular. In verse 2, he says the kings of the earth take their stand. This is a stand of a rebellious, defiant sort. The rulers take counsel together. They're gathering together. They're planning. They're strategizing. But who are they planning against? What, what, are, they, what are they strategizing about? Well, at the end of verse 2, they're doing all of this against the Lord and against his anointed. So we find here the Lord and this anointed figure aligned together. When they're opposed, they're opposed together. Who is this anointed one? This designation for someone to be anointed is used in various ways, but most prominently and certainly the right one in this context is to identify a king. Kings were anointed um, in Israel, and so this is clearly uh, the, the anointed king of Israel, one who's uh, designated to rule on behalf of the Lord, as his vice-regent. And as David is speaking this, he's the one who fills that office. He's the anointed king, Yahweh's vice-regent ruling on his behalf, but when David dies, that office is filled by his descendants. And this continues until one of those descendants in David's dynasty is faithful. Faithful to the covenant. Faithful to the Lord. Faithful for the instructions the Lord laid down for the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And finally and fully fulfills all that the Lord has purposed to accomplish through the Davidic dynasty, through that kingship. And then in verse 3, after describing the rebellious activity of the nations and their rulers in his own words, David takes us, as it were, into the strategy room of these kings and rulers, and we hear what it is they're saying. In verse 3, they're saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They want nothing to do with submission to or obedience to the Lord or to his his king, his representative on earth, the Davidic king. So in verses 1 to 3, David describes the rebellion of all humanity. You see, when the Lord created man, he created man as his image, his representative on earth to exercise dominion that is, to rule and govern his creation, the earth, on his behalf. But humanity, beginning with Adam, has engaged in one big mutiny. God so graciously made us a little lower than himself, psalmate says, crowned us with glory and majesty, made us to rule over the works of his hands, and placed all creation in subjection to us, as humans. But we mutinied. We used our authority not to cultivate and govern the earth so that the glory of the Lord might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, but rather we made ourselves ultimate, worshiping and serving ourselves. And it's this global mutiny by the Lord's image bearers, his vice regents, that is here depicted in verses 1 and 3 as the global rebellion. This image we see of the global rebellion is so critical for us to think biblically because we will never be on the right track in thinking about the world's problems until or if we don't begin with the correct diagnosis of the fundamental problem with the world. Do you get that? If you don't correctly diagnose the fundamental problem, you're going to be just kind of wandering and trying to find solutions. And according to this text, inspired by the Lord, Psalm 2, the fundamental problem is that unredeemed humanity lives its entire existence as one big rebellion against the Lord. That's the fundamental problem. So this global rebellion is the first part of this transcendent, confidence-creating perspective on world history. Now, I realize this first point isn't exactly confidence-creating, maybe transcendent, but not confidence-creating. But the confidence comes with the second part to which we now turn, the grand remedy. The grand remedy in verses 4 through 9. In verses 4 and 5, we see even before we discover what the grand remedy is for the global rebellion, we see the Lord. We get a peek at the Lord enthroned in the heavens. So over here, we find the global rebellion happening, verses 1 and 3. Then... Verses 4 and 5, we sort of change the camera angle, look in a different direction, we see the Lord enthroned, but simultaneous. What is the Lord doing simultaneously? He's laughing. He's laughing and he's mocking them. Who laughs when the nations are in an uproar? Is it not time to cower? Is it not time to panic? Is it not time to fret? Is it not time for the Lord to go back and reconsider what he had done wrong, how he had failed? Who has the gall to laugh at this global rebellion? Well, one by, who, who by very speaking, speaking a word, created all that is. One about whom and before whom Isaiah says the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And Isaiah continues saying that they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. And, he says, Isaiah, that the Lord lifts up the islands. Like what? To what would he compare that? Like fine dust. That's the one who can sit observing this and laugh. We haven't even gotten to the grand remedy yet, but let's pause here and consider what confidence we can derive from seeing the Lord and his confidence in the face of global rebellion. The world's not out of control. The Lord is not grasping for solutions. The Lord is sitting confident and composed, sticking to his plan and unwavering in the face of the ongoing rebellion of the nations. That is our Lord. We have reason for confidence. The Lord could snuff out humanity in an instant, but that's not his remedy. What is his remedy for the mutiny of humanity? He tells us in verse 6. He says, but as for me... That's shifting the attention now. We were hearing previously in verse 3 from the leaders of the nations. What they were scheming, what they were planning against the Lord. Now, the Lord speaks for himself. But as for me, he says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The Lord's response to the global rebellion is appointing a king to rule on his behalf over the earth. And who is this king who rules on the Lord's behalf? Well, it's David himself. Look at verse 7. David now speaks, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So the Lord's spoken, decreed something, said something will be. David's going to proclaim it. He said to me, David says, the Lord said to David, that is, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, sonship means different things in different contexts, and even in the ancient Near East, it meant a variety of things. But when we read this text against that ancient Near Eastern culture and backdrop, it's pretty clear that this idea of sonship is a way of identifying a king as the vice-regent of a god, one who rules on his behalf over the earth. The Lord's declaring David as his son as a way of identifying David as the one who will rule on his behalf over the earth. The Lord is king. Think of those psalms, Psalm ninety three through ninety nine, that just repeatedly declare the Lord reigns. That doesn't change, but he appoints a human king to to make that, that reign a reality, to make it tangible materialize it on the earth. And then the Lord's decree continues in verses 8 to 9. Because David is declared to be his son, and as a result of that, the Lord says to David, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So the Lord intends this Davidic king to exercise authority, to exercise dominion over the whole earth, and thereby to stamp out the global rebellion. That's the Lord's remedy, to appoint the Davidic king to rule on his behalf and to bring the global rebellion to an end. But David, David never accomplished anything of this magnitude. Yeah, he extended the borders of Israel, and within that domain he brought peace. But not to the point of it encompassing the whole earth. He certainly didn't take as his inheritance all the nations or the very ends of the earth as his possession. He didn't bring the global rebellion to an end. Here we are 3,000 years later, and it's still ongoing. But... That is not a problem for this grand remedy. The Davidic covenant itself, as it's recounted to us in 2 Samuel 7 and First Chronicles 17, has already taught us to expect that David himself won't fulfill all of these expectations by the way the covenant looks beyond David to a son of David, to Solomon, and beyond that. The role of being the Lord's anointed king, his son, representing and making tangible his rule on the earth, does not belong uniquely to David, but to David's dynasty. And with each new king, as he rises to the throne, there's hope that he might be faithful to the Lord, that he might fulfill to the full extent all of what the Lord promised he would do through this Davidic king. But when he fails, when he fails to be faithful to the covenant, just like we see with David and Solomon and Rehoboam, and it goes on down the line, when he fails to be faithful to the covenant, the people cast their eyes and their hopes yet further in the future, continuing to hope for that ultimate, that final Davidic king. So the function of this psalm, especially as we think about David dying and this psalm being kept and brought into the Psalter, continually being put before the nation of Israel, it's just helpful to ask, what was the reason? What did they have in mind? What were the people to take away from it? That really is the the meaning of the text, what it was intended for. So what was that function for Israel? Well, it was to kind of embody that hope, to teach them, to fix their hope for a resolution to the world's problems on that ultimate Davidic king. And sometimes, particularly with Old Testament passages, when we now need to interpret them and move to, to our position, how they apply to us, particularly when those are Old Covenant passages, we're now members of a New Covenant, sometimes there's a little bit of a, a road or, or a bridge to traverse to get there. But There is no road. There is no bridge here. Its relevance to us is exactly the same. The psalm functions to teach us to fix our hope for a resolution to the world's problems, to the global rebellion, and all of the collateral damage that comes from that on that final, ultimate Davidic king. And insofar as it functioned that way for Israel, oh, how much more it functions that way for us, and how much more vivid it is, because that ultimate Davidic king has come. He has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he has begun to reign as God's son. But, this is crucial to get, but he has not yet fully enforced that reign. And that The fact he hasn't yet fully enforced that reign is good news for rebels like you and me. As we'll see in the next and final part of this perspective, there's still a delay before that is enforced. So the second transcendent confidence creating, uh, or a second part of this transcendent confidence creating perspective on world history is the grand remedy. And now in verses 10 through 12, we'll see the third part, the gravity of, laden ramification. In light of that grand remedy, we and all humanity are told the implication. What does it mean for me, you ask? David's going to tell us. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, David says. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, or kiss the Son, that He may not become angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. In essence, verse 10 says, In light of the Lord's solution for the global rebellion, listen up. Understand, comprehend what was just said, and listen for its implications. Then, in verses 11 through 12... After telling us to sober up and to listen up, he tells us what we are to do. And there's three specific things we're told to do here. Two in verse 11, one in verse 12. So begin looking with me at verse 11. He says, first of all, worship the Lord with reverence or with fear. Worship the Lord with reverence. Secondly, rejoice with trembling. And third, kiss the sun. Now remember, who is the son? Well, back in verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a demonstration of homage, of submission to that Davidic king. So what's incredible about this last portion, verses 10 through 12, is that despite that grand remedy, rebellious humanity is not without hope. And that includes us. Being crushed by the iron scepter of the Davidic king isn't the only option. We are invited, rather, we are commanded to take a different course. That of submitting ourselves willingly to the reign of the anointed Davidic king. And within this somber mood, we're given yet another warning After the the, the command to kiss the son, he says, Lest that son become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But there's a blessing for those who do willingly submit to the son's rule. The very last line of the psalm, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. What incredible grace. Rebellious humanity, you and me included, we have an option besides simply being destroyed. Not only do we have the opportunity to not be destroyed, but the alternative is to be blessed. If only we will submit to King Jesus, or as this verse says, take refuge in him. King Jesus already began his reign on the throne of David at his first coming. And this whole period between his first and second comings is a period of opportunity to voluntarily submit to his reign. But for the rest of rebellious humanity who do not repent, he is coming back and he will complete that grand remedy as depicted in Revelation chapter 19. And John doesn't miss the opportunity to use exact language to draw our attention back to Psalm 2 to make that connection. Putting an end to the rebellion by force. I have more to say by way of implications, but let me just say at this point, if you're sitting here and have not voluntarily submitted yourself to King Jesus... You've heard the word of the Lord from this psalm commanding you to do so. There's so much more that can be said about what it means to take refuge in Christ. There's so much more that can be said about the blessings which come from being in Christ. And I would be thrilled to sit down with you and explain those things to you. So if you are in that boat I encourage you, come talk to me afterwards and I would be eager to talk to you about that. So we've seen three parts of a transcendent confidence-creating perspective on world history. There was the global rebellion. There was the grand remedy. And part three, the gravity-laden ramification. Now I'm going to draw out for us two implicit exhortations from this transcendent perspective. Number one, Seems obvious, but it's difficult. Place your confidence in the Lord's grand remedy. Place your confidence there. What is that grand remedy? Well, it's really kind of a personal remedy. It's Jesus Christ. It is his Messiah, his anointed one. I understand that's easier said than done. Much easier to say than to do. Why do we struggle Why is it so difficult? Well, for one thing, it may be because we want a more immediate solution. I doubt many of us would say this, but there's probably something within a lot of us that says, you're telling me the grand remedy could be something that's resolved after my lifetime? It's hardly satisfying. We got to bring that, those, those thoughts back to Scripture. Put them under the scrutiny of Scripture. What does the Word say? Well, for one thing, it tells us that this grand remedy may be realized in our lifetime. That's why our Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a huge hope For the Christian. Even before the coming of Christ, Uh, the coming of that ultimate Davidic king was the hope of Israel. And yet, sometimes when things are easy, when the grand rebellion kind of drifts out of view, that doesn't become so much of a cry of ours. And yet it should be. So allow the reminder of the reality of the grand rebellion to cause us all the more to pray that. Come, Lord Jesus. Another way that Scripture would scrutinize that concern, that desire for just an immediate solution and being dissatisfied with this remedy, would be to remind us that our experience is no different than that of all the faithful saints who have gone before us. Do you remember that chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, where the author lays out all of these faithful people, faithful in the sense of believing. Um, Certainly weren't perfect people, but they were exemplars of faith. And when you get to the end of that, the author writes this, in these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That is, they did not receive what was promised in their own lifetime. They had to await the resurrection to receive all of that. They looked forward to the resurrection. So, a second way Scripture would tell us to respond to that concern, that we want immediate solutions, is we're simply joining that great cloud of witnesses uh, who are looking on as we run the race, doing just what they did. And after all, trusting the Lord for solutions that lie beyond our lifetime and will be experienced only in the resurrection is simply what it means to live by faith. That's true in so many domains. For what other reasons might we struggle to place our confidence completely in this grand remedy, the Lord's Messiah? I think we often experience, are aware of a disconnect a disconnect between what we know to be true, what we would affirm, and our experience. I know those truths, and yet I'm still anxious, we say. I know those truths, and yet I have no confidence, you might be thinking. There's a disconnect. And if we aren't careful in scrutinizing that, our hearts can become hard, callous, and before we know it, we begin to just tacitly assume that the truth doesn't cut it. It simply can't change me. But often it's because we've hoped for simple solutions. We've thought that simply affirming a truth was to exercise faith. But affirming a truth is not quite the same thing as trusting in it. We can't be content simply to affirm that Christ in his coming is the grand remedy. Rather, we must be sure we are trusting in that remedy. remedy. Are we leaning on that remedy? Are we depending upon that? But that's where the difficulty is. Faith isn't easy. We have to fight to believe. You're not just one day going to start trusting and then set it on cruise control and you're believing for the rest of life. It's a constant fight, not a daily fight, an hourly or maybe even minute by minute fight. So, how do we fight for faith? There's a lot that could be said about that. Uh, here are just a few thoughts. One, we must speak the truth to ourselves. Simply knowing it, and when someone asks, Do you believe this, saying, Yes, I do, that's not generally enough. We've got to be speaking, preaching the truth to ourselves. The psalmist basically grabs himself by the lapel and pulls him in close and says, soul, soul, why are you downcast? Hope in God. And that's what we've got to do with ourselves. We must speak the truth to ourselves regularly. Some other ways we can fight for faith. We need to be careful about and be serious about removing from our lives influences that are implicitly telling us lies. Influences that are telling you, this is a time for panic. This is a time for fear. What they're saying is this, this is not a time to trust the Lord. Wow, how sinister is that? Those are influences which must be dealt with radically. A third way, we can be a fellow believer, a believer to to a brother or sister who speaks the truth rather than echoing the lies. How quickly we can become instruments of Satan in the lives of fellow believers, or at least allies with their flesh. Don't misunderstand me. This isn't all about the truth of facts, whether something's factual or not. There's lots of things that are factual, but yet when they're conveyed, they're conveyed with an additional message. Often you might hear a headline, but the headline's usually telling you not just this is a fact. It's telling you this is a fact and be frightened, be terrified. So it's not simply about facts. It's about how these things are couched. Are they being viewed and conveyed as interpreted by scripture, put within the context of a biblical framework? Now, we've looked at several ways that we can fight to place our confidence completely in this grand remedy, but I just want to Offer a bit of a clarification here. Avoid a misunderstanding. Just because we're placing our confidence in the grand, uncertain remedy doesn't mean life until the return of Christ will be easy. We must be careful to not fall prey to that kind of simplistic triumphalism. In fact, this text itself, Psalm 2, would suggest this to us that as we live as followers of that Messiah, as those who have abandoned the mutiny, have surrendered to the Lord and to his Messiah, and those of us who live as outposts of Christ's kingdom in the midst of rebel territory, we cannot be surprised by opposition. In fact, insofar as the nations within that grand rebellion are directing their rebellion against the Lord and against his Messiah, and insofar as our Messiah sits enthroned in the heavens, out of their reach, where do we expect they will direct their rage? But to his church on earth? This text is not encouraging some kind of simplistic triumphalism. In the second of the implicit exhortations from psalm 2 is this share with the rebels around you a the grand remedy which should be terror for them that the lord is going to bring an end to the rebellion when christ returns and make his absolute authority an inescapable reality destroying rebellious humanity a share with the rebels around you the grand remedy but B, share with the rebels around you the gravity-laden ramification, which is, willingly submit to King Jesus before he returns. In a nutshell, to use our, our terminology, evangelize. This category is, is really what Peter's getting at in Second Peter chapter 3. Remember that passage where he says there are these mockers? who say, yeah, there might be a grand rebellion going on, but the Lord's doing nothing about it. It's gone on, just like it always has. Nothing's happening to them. Are you sure Christ is really going to come back? Isn't it time to give up on hoping for that? And how does Peter understand that? He says, oh, but the Lord's being so gracious and patient that more rebels may repent, giving them time to repent that they might be saved if that's what this whole period is about while we await, then every time we are made uneasy, every time we're discontent by the delay, by having to not see the grand remedy brought about immediately, that ought to remind us the delay has a reason. It's not simply to be endured. It's to be capitalized on by proclaiming this opportunity to kiss the son, to submit to him while there's still opportunity. Our Lord has everything under control. We need to trust him. This is a time for confidence. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the clarity of your word We thank you for its transcendence that 3,000 years later still speaks clearly. And Lord, we've heard it, but while so much remains to us to now be transformed by it, to now live by it, we need your help, Lord, for that. I pray that for us, that your spirit would help us to walk in these truths, that we would fix our hope completely on that grand remedy. And that's a difficult course. Help us to do that. And help us, Lord, to be faithful in proclaiming this, this message to fellow rebels that they too might repent and believe. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.
1: What did the Lord teach the disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is no rebellion going on in heaven. That's already been squashed. That's happening on the earth. And one day, um, that same rain will come uh, to to all of the earth. Uh, And in the meantime, that rain can come to your heart uh, through... To submission to, to the Son. So, just a reminder, uh, even after the service, if uh, you don't know Christ and you've never bowed the knee to Him, you can talk to Tim, myself, any others. If you're watching, we feel free to contact the office. We have a Biblical Counseling Center that you could call and set up a, an appointment with. That we we want to help you uh, understand even more about that good news. The good news is because of the bad news, right? The good news comes because there's bad news. Think how gracious God is that he's not left us in the bad news. Amen? He has given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for being faithful uh, to the text and to, to the Lord. So.